Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Diffusion, the National Science Show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, Pat Ruby will talk to Andrew Lowe from the Centre for Excellence in British Columbia about the detection of different strains of HIV in order to determine the proper treatment. I'm going to finish our two-part series on the life and genius of the late, great Les Paul. What more can I say except my name's Whatmore, Lachlan Whatmore, and first up we have the latest science news with Pat Ruby. Your brain is more efficient than you think. Mammalian brains might use less energy to send transmissions than we first thought, according to new scientists. A brain cell sends its signals via projection to another cell. This projection is called an axon. The signal depends on a flux of sodium and potassium ions across the axon membrane. During a transmission, or action potential as it is known, sodium comes into the axon from outside and potassium goes out. This is then reset once the nerve cell has stopped signalling. The whole process requires energy to make it work. Original studies on axons were done by Alan Hodgkin and Andrew Huxley in the 1930s on a giant squid. They found that squid axon potentials were inefficient and that the flow of potassium and sodium overlapped. This made it difficult to create a net voltage across the membrane. About four times more energy was needed to do it than was hypothesized at the time. Research in rats has shown that their brains are more efficient because the flux of ions don't overlap as much. Humans use 20% of total body energy for neurological function. As rat brains are more closely related to ours, this could mean that other processes in our nerve cells besides signal transmission have a greater role in creating the demand for this energy. The research was conducted by Henrik Aller and Jörg Geiger of the Max Planck Institute for Brain Research in Frankfurt, Germany, and Arndt Roth of the University College, the University of London, UK. And finally, sock-spreading seeds. Your footwear might be helping non-native plants invade our landscape, in an article from ABC Science. Associate Professor Catherine Pickering and Dr Anne Mount of Griffith University, Brisbane, Australia, have researched the ability of clothing to spread plant seeds along the roadside of Kosciuszko National Park. Dr Mount spent several days walking in over 200 different items of clothing. She was stopped every 100 metres so that the number of seeds collected on her clothing could be counted. In total, 24,776 seeds were collected on the items of clothing. These came from 50 different species of plant, and 40% of those were non-native. About a quarter of the seeds collected were still attached to the clothing after a 5-kilometre walk. The item of clothing that transported the most seeds was the specialist explorer sock. The sports sock also collected seeds, but wearing trousers reduced the number of seeds collected by 
The researchers say that this could have a major impact on our ecosystem, as bushwalkers could introduce non-native seeds into national parks from the outside areas. They advise that picking seeds off your clothes might also spread the seeds, and that clothes should just be washed straight after walks. The results have been published in the Journal of Environmental Management. That was Pat Ruby with the latest science news. And Pat's now going to talk to Andrew Lowe from the Centre for Excellence in British Columbia, Canada, about the detection of different strains of HIV. As far back as 1982, there was only approximately 590 cases that were known of of HIV AIDS in the United States. Uh, that was most likely far, far underreported because no one actually knew what they were looking for at that time. But currently, there's approximately 40 million people worldwide who have HIV AIDS. A lot of them do not know they have it. And the majority of that population, or the majority of the burden of people with HIV AIDS is in sub-Saharan Africa. They have approximately 20 million people down there with HIV AIDS. I think, I believe uh, some of the latest figures for Canada was that there was about or approximately 58,000 people with HIV AIDS. And of those 58,000, close to a one quarter of them did not know that they were actually infected. How long could they be unaware of having the virus for before? Well, HIV, once it infects someone, can be in an asymptomatic phase. So what I mean is that you might have an initial flu-like symptom, but you wouldn't know that it was any different from any other type of flu. And after that flu-like symptom passed, you would be what they call asymptomatic. So you would have no visible external signs or manifestations that you were actually infected with HIV for upwards of between 7 to 10 years until you started developing a very unusual sorts of infections that a normal person like you you or I would just simply not get. Mm -hmm. When I think of HIV, what we know about it is it seems to uh, be a bit of a... um a bit of a criminal in terms of the way that it enters a cell. It breaks and enters into your T cells, doesn't it? And right. it does this via a very specific way. What are some of the things we know now about the different ways that HIV can break into and take over your T cells? You bring up a very interesting way of, uh, of mentioning how it gets into cells, saying they're breaking in, because essentially ex- that's exactly what it's doing. It's, it's taking over the the body's immune system and gets into these cells called T cells, which are the cells that the body uses to fight off other infections. So by using the body's own machinery, which generally will grab hold of whatever infections, a virus or bacteria that gets into it, it'll take one and it'll present it to these T cells and try and show it what it is so that it can fight it. And by doing so, it actually ends up causing infection and is able to spread throughout the body and d- eventually deplete the actual cells which the body uses to fight infections, which is the biggest reason why when someone has had HIV for a long-standing period of time, their body's ability to fight normal infections will decrease to such an extent that the simplest types of bacteria or fungi, which normally reside all over our bodies, in our skin, in our lungs, these generally innocuous microorganisms will then take over the body and cause all sorts of devastating diseases. What's actually interesting about the way it gets in the cells, I don't know if you've heard about this, but it uses what's called a CD4 receptor. And what it does is it essentially grabs onto the CD4 molecule to gain entry. But just CD4 isn't generally enough. It needs a co-receptor to get into the cells as well. And these co-receptors will generally come in two flavors, one being CCR5 and the other being CXCR4. 
as a short, we often call CCR5 R5 and CXCR4 is X4. And in short, what the virus needs to do, it needs to first bind to CD4, and then it sort of undergoes a type of conformational change and then binds to one of these two co-receptors, either CCR5 R5 or CXCR4. Once it's bound to both these co-receptors, it can then pull itself into the cell and cause an infection. Mm-hmm. Generally, the R5 viruses are the most common. They're and seen, I believe R5 viruses are present in about 95% of all inf- cases of infection, and the X4 viruses are seen in around 18 to 20% of infections. And this is generally important because when someone first gets infected, they will have an R5 virus infection almost predominantly. They might have X4 virus, but if they're there, they're using such low levels that with our current methods of detection, we aren't generally able to determine if they're present and how much of them there are. As someone progresses towards AIDS, AIDS being a, a clinical definition of having a low CD4 count, usually below 200 CD4 cells per milliliter of blood, then you'll start to see a lot more of the X4 viruses come about. If someone starts getting a higher burden of X4 viruses before they have a clinical definition of AIDS, they often tend to progress to AIDS a lot more quickly. So it can be important, although it's not necessarily usually tested for, to know what type of virus, we call it the virus phenotype, that someone has. So how is it that you're able to differentiate between the two types? How, how do we currently now tell a difference between someone who might have an R5 and someone who might have an X4? Well, up until the last couple of years, there really hasn't been that much interest in knowing for clinical purposes what type of virus someone has. However, over the last couple of years, new drugs have come about which block entry via one of these co-receptors. And the one that's been the most successful is the drugs that have been blocking the virus via the R5 or CCR5 co-receptor. The way we do that is there's been a lot of assays that have been performed and generally changed for years. And essentially what they do is they'll take some viruses and they'll take out the part of the gene in the virus which is sorry which encodes the envelope protein and the envelope is the outside of the virus which allows it to interact with its environment and by taking the envelope out and putting it or transfecting it into a bacterial cell line as along with a known type of virus which we call a pseudovirus which lacks an envelope these cells which have then been transfected with both an envelope from anybody that they want to determine how the virus gets into a cell and this envelope absent virus, which is essentially a stock virus, these cells will then produce viruses which have the stock virus genome, but have the envelope of the virus from whomever they took these samples from. They're then able to use these cells to infect a cell line that expresses one of the two co-receptor types. And as soon as the virus is able to infect one of these co-receptor types, it lights up producing what they call luciferase readout. And that's generally what's been used as these uh, quote-unquote gold standard for determining the HIV co-receptor phenotype. However, newer ways have been are being developed at this current state, which take advantage of bioinformatic approaches. Essentially what they're doing is they're taking the same envelope, but maybe in certain instances, smaller portions of it, and they're analyzing the changes in the DNA of the virus and looking at how those changes correlate with the ability of the virus to infect different cell lines such as the CCR5 or CXCR4 expressing cell lines. Mm-hmm. So the particular nucleic acids are, um, correspond with the expression of a particular protein, That's which right. is what you're looking at. We've been using 
viral genetics to determine eligibility for uh, antiretroviral drugs and HIV for a long time. And before these new drugs, these receptor inhibitor drugs were being used, we had a lot of different types of drugs which in inhibit many different portions of the HIV life cycle. And these include the ability of the virus to transcribe itself, the ability of the virus to integrate itself into the DNA of the host genome, the ability of the new virions which are produced to mature, and the ability of the viruses to actually bind to and infect cells. And all these different classes are essentially provide us with a unique arsenal in fighting off HIV because what they do is by using them in combination, we, use, we do what's called, the name for it is highly active antiretroviral therapy. But by do, doing or by employing combinations of three drugs or more, we make it extremely difficult for the virus to mutate to all three drugs at the same time in order, allowing the virus to break through a good analogy is to think of it as a combination lock, where if you were to take, you know, a standard combination lock with 60 numbers, if you were just to try each, if it only needed to be turned once, you could just try each number once, and it, you'd get the right combination out of eventually 60 tries. But if you had to turn it three times, like you do in a general combination lock, all of a sudden that becomes 60 times 60 times 60, which is much, much more difficult than it would be if you had to do it a single turn. And we use the same thing in HIV, and the newest drugs, which are the ones we were just talking about are these co-receptor inhibitors, which essentially gives us a brand new class because certain patients who have been on antiretroviral drugs for the last 10, 15 years, just because they might not have been completely adherent due to the difficulties in taking the drugs because some of the side effects can be quite toxic, or for any other number of reasons, they might have broken through, or the, the virus might have broken through all the available classes that we have to them. So by having a new drug class, which for instance, these ones we can inhibit the virus entry through one of these core receptors. We're, we've essentially created a new tool in the arsenal of drugs which can be used to treat HIV. Does it have a potential for side effects by inhibiting the normal function of yeah. the cell? Well, it does actually have a potential for side effects. Probably the side effect or the negative outcome that people were most worried about is that by blocking the by blocking viral entry through the CCR5 core receptor, is that we would then be putting on an, uh, an evolutionary pressure for the virus to mutate into one that is capable of entering cells through the CXCR4 co-receptor, which I had alluded to earlier, is associated with a more advanced progression to AIDS. So it was people were approaching this very cautiously for a while because they wanted to be on the, on the lookout for any virus that would be able to then switch as a response to CCR5 therapy to a more potentially dangerous virus. So far... Uh, this has not necessarily been proven to be the case, and the few switches that we have seen, we have not been able to prove they actually are associated with a truly more dangerous virus. The biggest problems in fighting HIV aren't the drugs or the vaccines at this point anymore, although the new drugs that we're going to come about with or that we will develop are going to significantly help by reducing side effects and ease of use and keeping adherence or uh, what, what they call compliance high. But the, the biggest problems in fighting HIV is the stigma associated with it because people who have it don't want other people to know that they have it, and people who are worried that they might have it do not want to get tested with it. If everybody in the world knew what their status was, and if it was accepted that they would not be persecuted for that status and could access medical care as easily as anyone could here in Australia, then you would find that the virus would be declining quite, quite quickly. Thanks, Patrick. You're listening to Diffusion, broadcast across Sydney on 2SER, across the country on the CRN and across the world on our podcast.
It's the Les Paul Show. As you may know, the world of electric music has lost its messiah. The great guitarist and recording innovator Les Paul died a few weeks ago, and I wasn't surprised to find myself quite upset. To me, Les has always been embodied by his most beautiful creation, the Gibson Les Paul electric guitar, made famous by the likes of Eric Clapton, Jimmy Page, Slash, Peter Green, Steve Miller, Neil Young, Ace Frehley, David Gersh, and a whole lot of other guys. However, it wasn't until Les died that I found out his contribution to recording technology. In case you missed the first instalment, here's Les himself. All the guitar parts that you can hear are being played by Les. This is regarded as the world's first multi-track recording, and if you ask me, that's some fine production there, sir. As I mentioned, Les had an obsession with gadgets. When he was just 10 years old, he invented a harmonica holder, which is still manufactured today. So it's hardly surprising that he was rarely satisfied with the technology available to the up-and-coming electric musician. And one of his greatest contributions to modern music was his invention of multi-track recording. Our story starts in Europe in the closing days of the Second World War. A young electronics engineer called Jack Mullen was sent by Allied High Command to find out all he could about German electronics. By chance, he found himself at a radio station, which he quietly relieved of two magnetophon reel-to-reel tape recorders and 50 spools of plastic tape. At the time, the magnetophon was state-of-the-art and was classified top secret by the Nazis. Mullen shipped his booty home with an idea to developing a sound recording system for Hollywood. In this digital age, tape recording seems obsolete because it basically is. However, in the late 40s, the magnetophon caused a sensation because of its amazing fidelity. When Mullen demonstrated it to some Hollywood sound techs, many couldn't tell the difference between a live and a recorded performance. It wasn't long before Mullen was demonstrating his system to none other than the crooner Bing Crosby, who just happened to be good mates with a guitarist called Les Paul. In the fullness of time, Crosby and Mullen had invested $50,000, a small fortune at the time, in a small company called Ampex, which began producing their own version of the magnetophon. And Crosby gave Les only the second machine to roll out of the shop, after keeping the first for himself. Now, just in case you can't remember or weren't born during the era of tape recording, and man, don't I feel old right now, West, get that look off your face, recording tape consists of a plastic tape impregnated with iron, ferric or chromium oxide particles. When exposed to a magnetic field, those particles will orientate themselves in a certain way and will stay that way until another magnetic field acts on them. So a tape recorder works by taking a certain sound, translating that into a certain magnetic field, orientating the oxide particles in a way corresponding to the field, and during playback, doing the whole thing in reverse, extracting the information from the tape by creating a magnetic field according to its particles orientation, and thus reproducing the sound. Now, if the tape is wide enough, several recordings, known as tracks, can be made on the one piece of tape. For example, a big one-inch wide, high-quality tape can hold 16 tracks across its width, each one capable of being recorded, played back, and if necessary, erased without affecting the other tracks. This is done using a recording head and a playback head. Within hours of receiving his new Ampex, Les had a brainwave. What if you added another playback head that would play another track on the tape, which would enable the musician to record a new track while playing along with something he or she had put on the first track. Or in other words, musicians could add layers of themselves, giving the impression that they had the free ability, ability to play, to play multiple, multiple instruments, instruments at, at once. once. 
Les began to experiment. This wasn't his first attempt at multi-tracking. One technique before he got his Ampex had involved him using a big pile of acetate recording discs, recording the first track onto one, playing that back and playing along with it to record onto a second disc, then playing that back and playing along with it onto a third, and so on until he had an eight-part recording. This was wasteful because the discs could only be used once, was stressful because Les had to get the guitar part right the first time with every take, and the sound was pretty poor because by the time the last disc had been cut, the first guitar track was now a recording of 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 a recording. So multi-track tape provided a quantum leap in the technology. Les and his wife, the singer Mary Ford, began releasing multi-track recordings, starting with the instrumental Lover. Les didn't just multi-track his guitar parts, he also multi-tracked Mary. Here she is. I'm sitting on top of the world, just rolling along. In 1953, Ampex presented Les with its first 8-track machine. Soon, not just Les and Crosby, but also the likes of Nat King Cole and a young Elvis Presley were using multi-track techniques in the studio. With the birth of the noisy new baby called rock and roll, jazz fell out of fashion and Les never had a major hit with an 8-track recording. This was a low point in his life. He and Mary were divorcing and he didn't even touch a guitar for a while. However, he returned to the jazz circuit in the mid-70s and played the Iridium Club in Manhattan every Monday night right up until his death. And right up until he died, Les kept fooling his audiences with what I think is a fictitious device called the Les Pulverizer. The Les Pulverizer consisted of a little black box attached to the bottom of his heavily modified Gibson. Les claimed that it could multiply a live guitarist and indeed gave some pretty convincing demonstrations, which you can find on YouTube, apparently even replacing the drummer by thumping on the strings and playing multiple guitar parts over it. In reality, it would appear that Les Paul Verizon was simply an off-stage tape recorder that could be turned off and on by the knobs on the little black box. Some less kind commentators have claimed the other guitar parts were already pre-recorded. However, this didn't stop none other than President Dwight David Eisenhower turn to his Vice President, Richard Milhouse Nixon, after they'd both seen Les perform, and say, That Les Paul bothers me. I still can't work out the Les Paul Verizon. So if the Les Paul Verizon was actually a newfangled piece of gear, its secret died with Les. And Les, wherever you are, mate, I hope you're having a good laugh about it. Happily, Les was given full credit for all his inventions before he died. He and Leo Fender are the only two people to have their own standalone exhibits in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which is pretty funny when you consider that Les played jazz, not rock, and Leo couldn't play at all. However, their legacy remains, and I was reminded of this a few weeks back when I saw Alice Cooper perform just after Les had died. His very first song involved both his guitarists playing a Les Paul each in a fitting tribute to the man and... His guitar. Hello there. Well, I still have my guitar hanging around my neck and my wife, Mary. Hi. And uh, my invention, the Les Pulverizer, I have that on oh, the floor. Oh, no, you're not going to start fooling around with that thing again, are you? Well, don't say it that way. That, that's our stock and trade, the Les Pulverizer. Yes, but we've got to eat, you know. You better get a job. Oh, well, just how do you propose that I should go out and get a job? Well, look in the paper. Do something. How does anyone get a job? Right now? Well, certainly. Well, all right, you go get the paper, and I, I was going to play a tune here called In the Mood. Now, I want to I I try something here by beating on the strings. 
sound like a drum, see, and get my foot going like this. Say, <laughs> you're really busy. You get the beat going, and then we plug one guitar into the Les Pulverizer. Well, listen. And that's all from this edition of Diffusion. Diffusion is produced and panelled right here in the 2SER studios in Sydney by the wonderful Patrick Ruby. And contributing to the show are Pat and yours truly, Lachlan Watmore. Now, if you'd like to give us some feedback, give us an email. You can send it to diffusion at 2SER.com. That's diffusion, all one word, all lowercase, at 2SER.com. Alternatively, check out our podcasts and our website on www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio, all one word, all lowercase, We'd very much like to hear from you. Thanks very much. We'll see you next week. The Bloodmobile, the Bloodmobile, our delivery service inside us. We begin in the heart's right ventricle and travel to the lungs. Red blood cells get oxygen to take back to the heart. Then from the left side of the heart and out to every cell Delivered by the blood mobile The food that's been digested is waiting at the dock To be taken to the tissues in the body's grocery truck So from the small intestine it's carried everywhere Delivered by the blood mobile The blood mobile, the blood mobile The white blood cells are soldiers that fight infectious germs. They make the antibodies their weapons in the fight. The army is transported.
the heart or regulate your hunger or your sleep. The hormones are the message. They're sent from many glands. The messengers, the blood mobile. Somebody's got to haul out the trash to the liver and the kidneys. It's not a pretty job. Carbon dioxide gets carried to the lungs to be exhaled. And the garbage truck is the blood mobile. The blood mobile.